you recall, last there's been um, we've actually been rolling along for the last two weeks, starting last week rather, um, talking about some of the civil matters that the scripture outlines. How should Israel live now that Israel is free? And last week we started looking at some of these civil matters and rules that God had established in his law to preserve an orderly society. Um, rules that you can say were given to them to help them get along, all right? And we started last week with slavery because, but, and, and, the, and we talked about the reason that we believe, the, the primary reason at least, that we believe God started there was because he wanted to make sure that the people that he had just delivered from slavery had, had a set of guidelines and rules and laws that would reflect that they understood what oppression felt like and that would reflect that they understood that, that they too had once been slaves and they too had been delivered from Egypt. And so God set these rules in place and he made sure to start with these rules so that a precedent would be set that they should never follow in the footsteps of Egypt and begin to be a deliverer of oppression and inhumanity and e exploitation and uh, injustice. And it's for this reason that we often hear God, God follow his instructions on how to treat the oppressed with something like he says in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 15. He, said, he, says, he says there, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God redeemed you, therefore I command you this today. I command you what? I command you to do, treat people a certain way. I command you to treat even those that are in your care, even those that are in bondage to, to you as a result of debt. I command you to treat them a certain way. Why? Because you were once a slave as well. In other words, let your conduct reflect that we as a people understand what it means to be on the brunt force end of oppression. That's what we talked about last week. And then we also talked about the fact that, that as a, at, at the, this law, the very nature of this law speaks to the character of the lawgiver. We know about the lawgiver based on the law that the lawgiver gives. And so with that thought in mind, I want to ask a question this morning. What do we learn about God? when we read the last four verses of chapter 21 and ultimately chapter 22. What do we learn about God in this text? Well, one thing we learn about God is that God is a God of restoration. Restoration is the act of returning something to a former owner or a former place or a former condition. And God shows in his law that he is absolutely committed to doing just that. When you read verses, uh, verses uh, 33 through verse 6 of chapter 22, you actually see that. And I, I want to read this now together. So let's look at verse 33 together. When a man opens a pit and when a man digs a pit and does not cover it and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner and the dead beast shall be his. Continuing, when one man's ox butts another's so that it dies. Then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, 
and the dead dead beasts shall be his. Verse 1 of chapter 2 continues. He says, if a man steals an ox or sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. Continuing verse 5, if a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and, and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. Amen. Here's what we learn from reading those verses. God, according to his law, has determined that society functions best when people are committed to not just seeking forgiveness for wrongs, but committed to giving restitution for the wrongs. God, according to his law, has determined that society functions best when people are committed to not just seeking forgiveness for wrongs, but giving restitution for wrongs. God's law makes provision for our relationships to not just be be filled with apologies. But God sets in order precedent that says that our relationships should include apologies, but also should include steps towards amending that which has been severed and that which has been broken. In other words, if you're the cause of a loss, then you should do whatever is necessary to restore that loss. In many failings in relationships, whether they be in church or whether they be in family or whether they be in marriage or in business or with friends or any other relationship, when someone hurts or harms another, we often may get an apology, but we get it without an actual commitment to actually repair that which has been broken. Have you ever experienced this in your life? Perhaps someone may have hurt you deeply and, and, and later expressed regret with, with no commitment to make it right. How did that make you feel? Notice I didn't ask you, how did you respond? We'll get to that later. I didn't, I didn't ask you, how did you get victory over it? We'll get to that later. No, I asked you, how did it make you feel? Because that matters too. I'm sure it wasn't pleasant. I'm sure it may have left some scars and some wounds depending on how deep the cut actually was. I'm sure it may have even left some friendships broken, left some careers in shambles. It may have left some marriages shattered. You see, we probably all have at some point or another experienced that kind of hurt that comes when someone wounds with no intent to repair. But to turn it around, I'm sure that that many of us have not only been on the receiving end of such hurt, but we've been on the giving end of that kind of hurt. We We have been 
We have been not just the offended, but we have been at times the offender that expresses an apology without desiring to do the work to bring healing. Maybe even we ourselves have have sought the easy, easy route to forgiveness in our relationships. Maybe we ourselves have sought apologies without repair. Regret without restitution. And why and why do you say why why do you say that or why do I say or say it with such confidence that that may be the case? But because restitution is sometimes too costly. So I know sometimes we hesitate to make the repairs. Restitution is too exhausting sometimes. It requires oftentimes more than quite frankly we are willing to give. Maybe the restitution was too humiliating. It required you to, you to swallow more of your pride than you were willing to swallow. But what happens when we refuse to repair what's broken? What happens when a car breaks down and we refuse to repair it? My GMC Sierra that I purchased last year started to give this weird tapping noise when I, when I began to crank it. And, I be, and I, my wife told me I need to check it out. And I said, I do need to check it out, but I just didn't check it out because it required something of me. It required me to stop doing what I was doing. It required me to reorder and rearrange my schedule. It required me to take the extra effort to go to the shop and to check it out. And so I put it off, and I put it off, and I put it off, and I put it off. And you know what happened? The truck got louder and louder and louder and louder. Eventually it started squealing instead of tapping. And then I found out this week, because we finally took it to the shop, that the issue wasn't that big of an issue. It wasn't that significant. All it required was attention that I wasn't willing to give it. Maybe some of our relationships are like that. That we put off what is necessary because it inconveniences us to do it. But maybe our mending, maybe the mending of some of these relationships aren't that far away. Just requires us to be inconvenienced. But oftentimes, when we leave our relationships just at, at cute apologies without any work, then the relationship remains incomplete at best. The mending of the relationship remains, uh, uh, um, remains incomplete at best or at worst, insincere. True regret, saints, comes with a desire to fix what we've broken. Not just simply to say, I'm sorry, but to look to repair that which we've broken. And that's the message that God gives us in Exodus chapter 21 through uh, Exodus chapter 22. Now, another very important point in this text about restitution is that the Bible seems to call for a punishment that fits the crimes committed. In order to see that clearly, we have to take a few steps back in chapter 21. So would you take a few steps back with me and look at verses 23 through 25 of chapter 21. And it says this. 
But if there is harm, you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. What is the Lord establishing here? He is establishing a principle of equitable justice. The punishment for the crime should fit the actual crime. This, this, this gave value to the offended. To say that, to say that, to say that if you committed a crime, no matter who you did it to, then you should pay in at the same level, or you should be met with the same force in punishment as the force that you distributed in the crime. That gave value to the offended, and it also served as a deterrent to the offenders. If I knew that my crime was going to cost me, then I would be reluctant to commit the crime. Now, see, it goes beyond just simply paying a fine of sorts. It's, it's meeting, in other words, it's hurting the person at the same level as they have hurt. If I know the, that justice for me hurting someone deeply is a repayment to me that will be equally painful, I'm not as easily tempted to offend. Now, here's a very important point that I need you to pay attention to if you're online, and it's this. This standard of law was not always intended to be applied um, literally. In other words, eye for an eye, two for two. We read that text and we often think in our minds that, oh, okay, if you pluck someone's eye out, then that means you're supposed to have your eye gouged out. Or if you knock someone's tooth out, that means that you're supposed to get held down while somebody pulls your tooth out. And, and that's not the intent of the law. That's not what the law is saying here. Death, in fact, was the only penalty that was consistently liberal, life for life. But the other penalties were, were, were mainly intended to communicate that the punishment needed to fit the actual wrong that was committed. You know that they aren't asking for an eye in exchange for an eye because in the very next verse, in chapter 21, verse 26, it says, when a man strikes the eye of a slave and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of the eye. If he knocks out the tooth of a slave, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. And, and, so, and so if it was asking eye for eye, then it would have said poke his eye out or knock his tooth out. But that's not the intent. Here's what one commentator says about this principle at work. He says this, listen very closely. The goals of laws that use the, the wording life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, is that the penalty imposed for causing physical injury must be appropriate to the nature of the injury. In other words, a mere monetary penalty cannot be considered adequate justice when someone has been permanently maimed by a person in a manner that clearly demands a punishment. This kind of law represents an advance on the non-Israelite biblical era laws, which routinely provided for fines as satisfying the legal requirement of justice in the case of a superior person's permanently injuring an inferior person. By contrast to the laws of pagan nations, the law governing God's chosen people Israel required real equity at law. 
and forbade people with money being able to buy their way out of criminal penalties. And then it continues. Listen closely, a little bit longer. Italian laws are easily misunderstood if they're taken literalistically. They usually do not mean what they sound like they are saying to the modern ear. No evidence exists that any judges in the ancient world ever actually required a literal application of the Italian law beyond the first terms life for life. In cases of murder, the murderer was put to death as a life for life, satisfaction of the law. But beyond that, there was no taking of someone's eye in exchange for having ruined the eye of another person. And then he says this, and he closes with this. Instead, expressions like eye for eye were understood idiomatically to mean a penalty that hurts the person who ruins someone else's eye as much as he would be hurt if his own eye were actually ruined also, end quote. Do you understand that? The point is not mutilation, in other words. The point was repairing a wrong done by meeting the force of that wrong with an equal force. If you have put someone's eye out, that is life-altering. So it should be met with life-altering force. Hence, in the case of the slave, they're set free. That's life-altering for who? For the master. As Christians, we should be the kind of people that look to meet our wrongs the wrongs that we do to one another with an equal force of repair and restoration. Now, believe me, I'm not saying that you're supposed to live in perpetual guilt. And by the way, I, I'm not through with the sermon yet, right? Because I know some of you guys want to say, well, what about Jesus saying eye for eye and, and, all, and all the things that he says? So you need to listen all the way through on this subject because if you stop here, you're going to have an incomplete picture of what I'm saying. Nevertheless, Christians should not be seeking to escape opportunities to right wrongs, but instead should be looking to meet those wrongs with a force of restoration equal to the force of the wrong. Too many professing Christians are way too comfortable with saying or doing deeply offensive things to other, other people and following it up with an empty, I'm sorry, I won't do that again. Rather than asking the Lord for grace and discernment to learn what kind of necessary and, and radical steps that, 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 that the Lord can, can do in me, to transform my behavior and the, and, the, and the radical steps that I can take to repair what I've broken, we put all the ownership on the ones that have been offended. We tell them, well, I said I'm sorry. What more do you want? And I mean, I said I'm sorry, and you're a Christian, so since you're a Christian and I said I'm sorry, then you need to accept my apology because you're supposed to be showing grace. That is not the approach that the offender should have in restoration. The offender should carry a desire to make it right. Now, like I said a moment ago, there's still more to say on this, so stick with me a little while longer. Don't leave yet. Now, restoration is, is equitable. Re restoration is, 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 is with restitution. In other words, it comes with something. And notice also in the text that restoration is regardless of intent. 
It comes regardless of intent. Look at verse 33 again. It says, when a man opens a pit, and when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to his owner, and the dead beast shall be his. The harm, the harm doesn't have to be intentional to require repair. Here's a man digging a pit, most likely a cistern, and for whatever reason, whether it's an honest mistake or outright negligence, another man's animal falls into the pit. And who has to pay for that? The man who dug the hole. Did he intend on killing his neighbor's donkey or ox? No. But the intent doesn't remove the harm that has been done. You know, sometimes we allow our carelessness in how we deal with one another. Our carelessness in our relationships with others. Sometimes we allow that to become an excuse for the pain that we cause others. Well, I... I know that they're hurt because, I, because of what I said or because of what I did. But I didn't mean anything by it. And so I, I don't really understand what the big deal is. I don't even understand what they expect me to do about it. Have you ever heard that before? Brothers and sisters, we need to be willing to weigh our actions rightly and not give, not give cover to ourselves, not give cover to our careless hands that, that hurt people irresponsibly or our careless tongues that, that wound people with our words. We need to be able to deal rightly with ourselves. Even when you're not intentional in your harm, it doesn't mean that your harm doesn't require repair. Now, this is something that can obviously be exploited. And so we have to be careful, right? We have to be, we have to be discerning. And, we, and sometimes this may require inviting other people into the conversation. Does that make sense? Because we know that sometimes people can, can just simply use the fact that they know that you're going to seek with, uh, you're going to seek with everything you can to repair a situation. And because they know that, they can exploit that, 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 that love and that compassion in you. And they can say to themselves, well, yeah, I mean, you hurt me, even when you didn't do anything wrong. This is what happens in courts, of course, right? When people come in and they say, hey, you know, I, I, I got whiplash. Here's my neck brace to show the proof of my whiplash, even though they aren't really hurt. But they're trying to take advantage of the fact that restitution, it comes when people, when people hurt people, whether it be intentional or unintentional. And so people can exploit this even in our relationships. So it requires, again, good character, good judge of character. It requires inviting responsible and wise people into the conversations to say, hey, why don't you listen to this side and listen to this side, and then why don't you offer some, some insight into this matter? But the point, the most important point in this, is that it doesn't have to be intentional all the time for it to require repair. Sometimes... Your unintentional harm can be just as significant, if not more significant, than your intentional harm. So, lastly, what do we do with Jesus in this? What do we do with Jesus? Because Jesus has words for 
how we should look at look at handing out justice in matters like these. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, Jesus says this. He says, you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a two for a two. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And so that settles it, right? Jesus says, you've heard it said that eye for an eye, two for a two, but I say to you, don't resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, offer him the other also. Case closed. This eye for eye, tooth for tooth, equitable retribution or equitable rather restitution and restoration, all of that is for not. We're in the New Testament now, Crawford, so you can just throw all of that away. Here's what I want to say to you. I want you to, I want you to read it again, and I want you to note the vantage point that Jesus is speaking from. He says, but if I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Where is, who is Jesus speaking to? Is he speaking to the offender or is he, spe or is he speaking to the offended? He's speaking to the offended. Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that all, all of the law that, that gives us a, the character of the law that says you should right or wrong is not nullified in Christ. It's expanded. And this is what I mean. The offender has a job when he offends. That is to make right, to make amends. But the offendee in Christ, or the offended rather, in Christ, has a job as well. And that is what? That is not to hold the offender unnecessarily hostage to his offense or her offense. The offended has the responsibility not to seek vengeance on their own. The offended has the responsibility to extend mercy at the offense. So what's happening now? Now there are two jobs. The offender has the job to work and restore and make things right, right? The offender doesn't just say, well, you know, Jesus said you're not supposed to worry about that. You're supposed to, you know, offer me the other cheek also, so show me the other cheek so I can hurt you again. The offender has a job, but the offended has a job as well. And that's not, and that's, and that's to say, hey, eye for an eye. You owe me. And I'm holding this thing over your head until I get what I feel is due justice. Or I'm going to take matters into my own hand and I'm going to seek vengeance on my own and get what I deserve. Why? Because eye for an eye, two for a two. I deserve justice from you. One commentator says of this text, 
Therefore, when Jesus asks us to do what seems impossible, namely giving up our right to make people pay for what they've done to us, he is only asking us to do what he did. And when he asks us to show mercy, he is only asking us to give what he has given to us. Rather than exacting strict justice down to the last tooth, God has shown us his mercy. He has forgiven our sins and granted us the free gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. So the offended says what? Because I've been forgiven much, then I give much forgiveness. The Christian who offends fights to repair the relationship and restore what they have broken. This is keeping in line with the law of God. Why? Because love repairs and love mends and love restores. However, the Christian who has been offended should fight to extend grace and mercy as the one who has been deeply offended or, or the one who has deeply offended God and yet has received in return grace and mercy for his or her offense. They should extend grace and mercy as the one who too has sinned against others and didn't receive the just payment that their offense probably earned them. And why should they do that? Well, because love is patient and love is merciful and love makes restoration easier than it should be. How do you do this? How does this happen? Well, this happens when both the offended and the offender have their eyes fixed on Jesus. Zacchaeus was an offender. He cheated people out of their money. And yet, when he looked on Jesus, he desired to right the wrongs that he committed. The wrongs that he committed when he cheated and exploited people in their taxes. When he looked upon Jesus... He said that in him is righteousness, and because in him is righteousness and I desire to know him, I pursue righteousness. I pursue making things right. But also when Peter says, Jesus, how much should we forgive? And Jesus says, you should forgive without, without quota. And why does he say you should forgive without quota? He tells a story about a king who forgave much. Meaning that when you look at me and you look at what I've forgiven you and you keep your eyes fixed on that, then that should lead to you forgiving deeply. If the offender and the offended have their eyes fixed on Jesus, then relationships that are broken can be repaired. Can you imagine a world where offenders are always seeking to make things right and the offended is always seeking to forgive. Can you imagine churches where offenders are always seeking to make things right and the offended is always seeking to forgive? Can you imagine marriages where the offender is always seeking to make things right and the offended is always seeking to forgive? These are the rules for how we get along, saints. Not just as a society, but as friends and as, and as, and as lovers, as married folk, and, and as, as family. This, these are the rules for how we get along. And in Christ, they've been made possible. When we look to Jesus and we see what he's done, 
then we immediately have the motivation not only to right our wrongs if we're the offender, but to forgive if we're the offended. Would you pray with me? God, we love you and we thank you. And Lord, we give you the thanks.